but we have been on this journey, um, such a great journey through the book of Romans. How many of you have enjoyed the journey so far? As we've been looking at the book of Romans, this is something we love to do as a church, is walk through scripture together and really get the essence of what it is that Jesus speaks to us about through his scripture, how he reveals himself. We don't wanna just read the Bible in little bits, and I've said this so many times before, but when you read the Bible bit for bit, what you extract is principles that you're supposed to try and live by. But when you read the Bible as an entire story, as one story, when you read whole books of the Bible and you put it into the context of the rest of the Bible, what you extract is not a principle, but what you receive is a person called Jesus. And we don't want to just read a little bit and find a little piece of principle here and a little bit of good advice here and a little bit of of, of a, a tip for how to live a better life here. What we want to find is and what we want to see is the face of Jesus. We're all about Jesus. We want to know him, we want to live in him, we want to, we want to know our righteousness, we want to know our identity, we want, to, we want to boldly walk in everything that God has secured for us through his son on the cross. And so um, we've been through this, going through this journey in the book of Romans, and it's this passionate letter, this grand statement about how flawed people like us get to be made right with God. Come on, aren't you grateful for that this morning? That you being right with God is not dependent on you. That is the best news you will ever hear. Because if being right with God was up to us, we'd all be in in trouble, right? Wives, you can nudge your husbands right now and be like, yes, definitely you. You'd be in trouble, right? So (laughs) we'd all be in trouble if being right with God was up to us. But the book of Romans and this letter of Paul as he expresses the gospel so seamlessly is that being right with God is not dependent on us. It's not dependent on our goodness. It's not dependent on our observance of the law. It's dependent on faith. It's dependent on the grace of God. It's dependent on the gospel. And there is hope and there is passion and there is joy that comes out of this. And so um, we've, we've covered a couple of chapters and this morning we're in Romans chapter number five. Um, So if you have your Bibles here, please open them up to Romans chapter number 5, and uh, we're going to pick it up there in Romans 5 and verse 1. And uh, for those of you that may be visiting with us, if you want to listen to the rest of the messages, if you want to catch up with us with where we're at right now, uh, we do have all of these messages available on our website, anchorjoburg.org, and also on our SoundCloud account. So if you download the SoundCloud app from the App Store and then uh, follow Anchor Joburg, You'll find all of our messages there, and you'll be able to follow along with us. So download the SoundCloud app, and uh, you'll get those notifications. But um, in Romans 5 and verse 1, I'm going to read this this morning. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. It does not disappoint. Because God's love has been shed abroad, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope does not disappoint. This is a hope that cannot fail because it's dependent on the love of God that has already been shed abroad in our hearts. Let's go ahead and pray together this morning, and we're going to get stuck into Romans chapter 5. Father, we thank you this morning that we get to be together, and we get to hear your word, Lord. We thank you that when we hear your word, we don't hear it simply uh, with, our, with our carnal minds or our, or our natural minds, but we get to hear from your Holy Spirit. 
We thank you, Father, that you right now, by your word, are are speaking to us very deep in our hearts, Lord God, informing us of our righteousness in Christ and making the good news uh, palatable to us today, Lord God, that we can taste and see that the Lord is good. We thank you, Jesus, for this journey that you have us on as you continue to reveal yourself and inspire faith within our hearts. We thank you, God, that we get to walk with you today, that we get to have fellowship with you today, that we get to worship you today, Lord, and that we, to, we get to grow deeper and deeper uh, in our relationship with you and in our understanding of your love. Let us be rooted and grounded in your love this morning, Lord God. Let the foundation of our lives be your love, your goodness, your sacrifice on the cross. And we give you the glory for this. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said, amen. Amen. Have, have any of you ever gone out into some remote place, maybe out in the Karoo? Uh, we recently were traveling down to Cape Town and slept over in this little town in the middle of the Karoo. Uh, or if you've gone out into the bushveld and you sat next to the fire in the evening, or, uh, or if you've been out in any remote place and just looked up at the stars. Have any of you done that recently? Where you just, you know, in Joburg, we, we don't speak about stars. We, we don't use the plural word. We just say star because there's normally only about one that you could see uh, with all the city lights that we have. But when you get out a little bit and you get to sit down, you get to look up, it's, it almost takes your breath away in that moment, especially if you haven't seen it for a while and you look up and everything just looks so, so almost like you can reach out and touch it. It's just so real and so overwhelming in its beauty and in its presence and, 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 and you just become aware again of, of, of our place in this universe and the, and the glory of God is the Bible says that, 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 it's, that the heavens declare His glory. They, they sing about His goodness. They, His invisible attributes are clearly seen in the things that are made. And you once again get overwhelmed with this idea that what we see above us is only a small percentage of what actually exists out there. That even if we traveled for eternity, we would never even reach the end of our universe or, or, or be able to, to measure out the expanse of the universe. And that we live in this galaxy that takes, uh, if you were traveling at the speed of light, would take you 100,000 years to, to travel across. And then we're only in one galaxy, which is one of billions of galaxies. And, and we, we begin to recognize that there is a great God out there. It begins to overwhelm you. For me, this, this physical universe has fascinated me since I was very, very young. I remember um, sitting outside at the stars and taking a pair of binoculars and strapping them to a bar stool and, and through the binoculars, just taking a look at those stars and going, it, it, it just, it, it was not only fascinating, it was frustrating. Have you, if any of you ever looked at the stars and just been frustrated? <laughs> Some of you are like, he has issues. Um, but it's frustrating because it's so incredibly huge. The magnitude of it all feels like I cannot grasp it. I cannot take it all in. I cannot, I cannot perceive it all. I cannot feel it all. I cannot taste it all. It's, the magnitude is just beyond me, and it's almost this frustration. I remember almost blinking my eyes and saying, just look at it. Just take it in. But it's like my mind isn't able to, to conceive of the greatness of what God has created. And it's frustrating in that moment. I remember looking at the moon uh, through those binoculars and, and actually being able to see some of the craters on the moon and thinking, it's, that's out there. It's not, a, it's not a movie. It's not a story. That moon is really there and, and, and it exists and God put it there. And, and how much else has God created that we haven't even begun to understand? And, and so I, I always kind of had this frustration. I was like, I want to know it better. I want to understand it more. I want to enter more deeply into it. 
It reminds me of a time when I was in primary school and I was catching uh, a lift to school and somebody in the car had lip ice, but like the old peach lip ice or the grape lip ice. How many of you remember the old lip ice, right? And there's something about the smell of lip ice. And I opened up the cap and I smelt it and it was the grape flavor. And it smelt incredible. I don't know if you've ever smelled grape lip ice, but do yourself a favor, dig, dig up an old lip ice somewhere and smell it because it's just amazing. And I remember at one point, I couldn't take it anymore. It just smelled so good. I was like, surely anything that smells this good must also taste good. Surely. Surely there cannot be a, such a big disconnect between how it smells and how it tastes. And so, believe it or not, I took a bite of the lip ice. I was like, this is so good. Mm. And then obviously I was just eating Vaseline, which was horrible. It completely did not deliver on my expectations. But, but um, it's that same thing. I, I just, I wanted to taste the fullness of that flavor that was so appealing to me. And I think that when we see things that are as beautiful as the, the stars in the heavens, or we listen to an incredible piece of music, or we sit before an incredible landscape, a sunset or an ocean scene, the truth is, is that we want to do more than just observe it. When we see something incredibly beautiful, we want to do more than just look at it. There's something that cries out within us to be connected to that beauty, to, to, to feel that beauty on the inside of us. When we look at the stars, we want to fly up to the stars. We wish we could travel up there in an instant and be counted amongst them. That we could stand amongst the stars and that we could run around on the moon and that we can experience the fullness of the beauty of those, of those stars. We want to hold the moon in our hands. We want to feel the dust of it between our fingers. We want to taste the flavors of life. We want to listen to music, but not only listen to it, almost want to have the, the music mingle with our soul, and we want to be moved by the rhythm of it. We want to be poured out into this beauty that we see. There's something that attracts us to it. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, we do not merely want to see beauty. We want something else, which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become a part of it. There's something in us when we see beauty of creation and the beauty of the human soul, the beauty of what God has done on this earth that wants to enter into it and become a part of it. In the first few chapters of the book of Romans, Paul is, is making something very clear and he's very pointed as he goes through Romans 1 and Romans 2 and Romans 3 and then into Romans 4. Um, and what he's saying, he begins in Romans 1 by saying we all recognize the beauty in creation and by it, we know that God exists. The Bible tells us there in Romans 1 that his invisible attributes, his eternal glory and power and majesty is clearly seen in that which has been created. There's a reason why we look at the stars and we cannot comprehend it and why, we cannot, why our minds cannot conceive or receive the beauty and the magnitude of creation. It's because it is there to represent the glory of God and that's something that our minds cannot fathom. The extent to which God is glorious. The essence and the beauty of his nature and his character is far beyond our understanding. We think very, very small. Everything we know about God is less than 1% of what there is to know about God. And he's revealed himself in as much as we can receive him. But God is so much greater than anything we can imagine. And what he has created, just that's why it frustrates us. I want to know God. 
And that's why people often take the idea of God and they create for themselves a very safe God. A God that just meets their needs and a God that just does what they want to do and a God that just plays to their insecurities and just says, okay, God, you do, you be this kind of a safe God that, that just does what I want you to do. And God goes, I'm the creator of heaven and earth. Like he shows up with Job and he says, Job, I'm gonna, I'm gonna question you. Gird yourself like a man because I'm gonna ask you some questions and then you can answer me. Good, uh, uh, Job, where were you when I set the stars in the sky? Where were you when the, when the angels sang as I created the universe? Were you there, Job? And he begins to talk about the, the nature and the character of God. And he says ultimately to Job, I am sovereign. His eternal power and his eternal glory, it exists and we can see it in creation. And Paul goes on and says, so we know that there is a God. And we know that he is a good God and we all have a moral law on the inside of us. We know what's right and wrong, but we all have in our unrighteousness, having been separated from this glorious God and not being able to bear the weight of being separated from him, we have chosen to suppress the truth. We've forced down the truth. No, 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 there's no God, there's no God. I think it's G.K. Chesterton who said, if there were no God, there would be no atheists. The atheists have to convince themselves that no, no, there's no God, there's no God. We're fine, we're fine. We're fine, guys. Guys, we're fine. There's no God. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And what the Bible says is that in suppressing truth, what actually happens is that their thinking becomes warped. They become futile. And it, and it uses that verse there in, in Romans 1 where it says they are darkened in their thinking. There's darkness that overtakes their thinking. They choose to no longer reflect the glory of God or, or thank God uh, as the creator. They choose to no longer stand in relation to God and their relationship with God is, is broken, it's, it's severed. So I was thinking about the moon. And the same way that the moon is made out of dust, so we as people, the scripture tells us, are from dust. When God created Adam, the word Adama in Hebrew literally means from the dust or from the earth that God made him after having made the earth, God took from the dust of the earth and from that dust, he fashioned a body, a person called Adam. It tells us this in, in Genesis 2 and verse seven, it says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This is the only form of creation, it's the only part of creation where God breathed his own spirit into his creation. Man had biological life, the Greek bios life, but not zoe life, not the life of God inside of him. We were alive, Adam was alive just like trees are alive, and just like the grass is alive, but he wasn't alive like God is alive. Until God took his own spirit, and that word breathed is the same word that we have in the Hebrew for spirit, for wind, and for breath, and for life. And it means, uh, the word in Hebrew is ruach, that God breathed his ruach spirit into this man that he had formed. And in that instant, man became the crown of God's creation. Someone who wasn't just alive for the mere fact of being alive, but that had the ability to relate with God because we received his spirit. God created us in his likeness 
as a spiritual being who is able to experience life, who's able to experience and connect with and have a a relationship with the Creator and to experience the joy of His presence and to be filled with with His love and His goodness and, and an understanding of what is true. That's how God created us, and God created us that way. And in being His creation, we receive the ability to reflect His glory in a way that no other part of creation can, in a way that no sunset or, or, or sunrise or uh, no, no picture of the heavens would ever be able to declare. We have received the ability as people to reflect God's glory. We're filled with His glory, His life. That word glory is a bit of a weird one, isn't it? Because nobody goes, yeah, I'm just praying for glory. They, what does that mean? What does glory mean? What does glory look like when it is in our lives? And if I can summarize it very, maybe oversimplified, forgive me for oversimplifying it perhaps, but the glory of God is simply to behold the essence of the beauty of his character. It's who he is. And we were created to reflect the essence of who God is, male and female. He created us to reflect his glory, to reflect his character, to reflect his love, to reflect his nature, to reflect his majesty. So God put his very character, his very attributes on the inside of us as people. The beauty of his nature was put into, into man. Quite like the moon that's made out of dust and has no real glory of its own. The moon only shines because the sun shines on it. The moon is only able to reflect light that comes from the sun in the same way that the moon is made out of dust and reflects the light of the sun. We as people do not have any glory in our own flesh. There's nothing that we can boast about before God. There's nothing that we can stand before God and say, God, I am so good, look at my glory. God says, are you not dust? Are you not just merely dust? The only glory that we have in this life, the only glory that we can reveal in this life is when the light of the gospel, when the light of God, when the light of his nature and his character and his ability and his beauty reflects off of us. We are a reflection of our creator. We're the reflectors, the mirrors of God's glory to this world. Just like the moon is dust and we're made of dust, we get to shine as his light shines on us. Now, I know that your uh, reservation to this might be, but we look at mankind in general. We look at what's going on in the world. We look at how sinful people are. I mean, we're watching videos on Facebook and YouTube all the time of, of the crime that's going on in our country and just how savage people can be. And we've experienced the hurt of broken relationships and disappointments and betrayals and, and all of the rest. And we say, how can we say that man, as evil as we are, mankind and people as, as flawed and broken as we are, how could we be the ones to reflect the glory of God? Surely our brokenness keeps us from reflecting that glory. Why is man so evil? A lot of people that have issue with, with the gospel and with the Bible, they, they struggle with this thing. If God is a good God and he created us, why do we have this capacity for evil? And I wanna answer that question today by asking you this question. It's gonna sound strange at first. But how evil can an impala be? You just think about that for a moment, like an impala out in the felt right now in the Kruger National Park or wherever it's chilling. Um, how evil, what capacity does the impala have for evil? 
very little, right? Because it doesn't really do much except eat and, and a few other things that I'm not going to go into. But, but an impala can only be so evil. Why? Because it can only be so good. It wasn't created to reflect the fullness of God's glory. It was created to just be an element reflecting God's glory. And it just lives according to instinct, and, 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 it, and it's just out there. It doesn't have thoughts of morality. It doesn't have thoughts of love. It doesn't have thoughts of spirituality. It doesn't have thoughts of connecting with its creator. It just has thoughts of eating some grass and avoiding the predators. And those are all just natural. So, so an impala only has so much potential for good. And therefore, as a pendulum, only so much potential for evil. We've never come across a really, really just bad impala, <laughs> right? Why can people be so evil in our dealings, so hurtful, so deceitful? Because we have so much potential for good. We have the potential to reflect God's glory in a way that no other part of creation can reflect. And because of that, we have the converse potential to walk in a darkness that is unparalleled to the rest of creation. It's like the dark side of the moon. On the, on the, on the side of the sun, everything is beautiful and you can see the earth and you can see the stars and you can see the landscape, but you go onto the dark side of the moon and it's pitch black and ice cold. And so as much potential we have as people to reflect the glory of God, that's why there's so much brokenness and evil in this world because we have the converse potential to completely miss the mark. And that's what the word sin in the Hebrew language actually means. That's what it means. When the Bible says that we have all sinned, like we read in, in, in Romans 3, and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned means to miss the mark, we've fallen short. It's like, it's an, actually a term from archery and you, you, you pulled back the, the arrow uh, on the bow and you released it, but you, had, you didn't have enough power to release the arrow so that it would hit the mark of what you were created to be and what God called us to reflect. And so all of our arrows just fell short of the mark. None of us are good enough to reflect God's glory to walk in the fullness of what we were created for. And that's what it means to sin. The same capacity that we have to reflect and savor and to be a part of God's glorious existence, when that capacity becomes disconnected from God, we fall from it. We fall from it. And we begin to walk in darkness. Isaiah 59 verse 9 says this. It says, therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, darkness for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We hope for light. We still have, have the desire. We still look at the stars. We still see the attributes of God. And we want to be a part of it. We want to be good people. We want to serve God. We want to be faithful. We want to be true. We want to walk in perfect love. But behold, we walk in darkness and we walk in gloom. And this is where the Bible, especially in the book of Matthew and in the book of John, speaks about our state of humanity before Jesus arrived. 
And what it says is, it says, it says, and I love this, it says, those who sat in darkness. Those who sat in darkness. To me, there's a, there is a, there's a resignedness about that. Kind of like when you're at home and you're prepping to do all kinds of, of, of maybe some work at home, spend some time with your family, maybe watch a movie, and you're busy making popcorn, and you, you know, you're getting ready for a great night, and then ESCOM happens and the lights go out. And, uh, and then what do you do? The microwave stops, you know, mid-pop, and, uh, and you've got, you know, you, you can't even see where you're going. And so many times when that happens at home, I just go and sit on the couch because there's nothing I can do. Just go sit on the couch. And that's what we have. We, we, in our darkness, found no way of producing light, no way of making light come about. And so we went and we sat in darkness. Those who sat in darkness. This was the state of mankind. And this is really what in the first three chapters of the book of Romans, what Paul is actually saying. Paul is actually saying to us that this is the state of mankind. In case you thought you were good enough to reflect the glory of God, let me help you, we've all fallen short. All of us are sitting in darkness. The state of humanity, whether you think you're very, very good or whether you know you're really, really bad, the point is we have all fallen short of his glory and are not able to reflect what we were created for but we desire light. In the midst of our darkness, we desire the light. We crave it. We search for it everywhere. We try find it in food and in sex and in beauty and in music and in success. We're all in search of light. People are in search of light. But in the first three chapters of, of Romans, Paul says, but there's no light for humanity. And then when he ends chapter three and he goes into chapter four, he begins to show us that God has made a way that the gospel has cracked open the door and allowed the light of God to flood into our situations again. One of my favorite verses from scripture is Isaiah 60 verse one. Listen to this, think about it. We all sat in darkness. And then it says in Isaiah 60 verse one, arise, shine. If your mom has ever woken you up saying, arise and shine, it came from Isaiah 60. <laughs> arise, shine. For your light has come. And the what? The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Arise, shine. You sat in darkness, but now you get to stand up. Because the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and a thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. Once again, we get restored to a place where we can reflect the glory of God. Matthew 4.16 says, The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Those who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who dwelt in the shadow and the region of death, on them a light has dawned. How incredible is this that we were so without hope, so without light, so without a future, so without the ability to be the people that God's called us to be, and then his light dawned upon us through Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. His grace causes God's light to shine on us again. And we are restored as people to the glory of God's original design and intention for us as people. 
God restores us back to his original design. Not by us becoming good enough. Just remember, we're just dust. Dust can't be good enough. But by standing in his presence, being able to have access to, to, by faith, it says we've been justified so that we have access to this grace in which we stand. You see, when you stand and when you have the right and the ability to now stand justified in God's presence, guess what? You're able to reflect his glory. And in the Old Testament, Moses got a glimpse of God and when he went down the mountain, he put a veil over his face because of the glory that was shining off of him. It was reflecting off of him. But Moses received the law in that moment. And what the Bible tells us is that later on it says in, in, in the book of Corinthians that, that he didn't put the veil over it because he didn't want to blind people. He put it over his face so that people wouldn't see that the glory was fading. You see, according to the law, when we try and be good enough for God, we might have a semblance of glory, but it's a glory that fades. But he says, but if the ministry of death and condemnation through the law was glorious, how much more would the gospel of his grace produce an unfading glory in our lives? That's what the gospel does in our lives. It produces an unfading, never-ending, eternal glory as we are made righteous and we get to stand before God. And that's why Paul starts uh, this Romans 5 verse 1 by saying, therefore, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with him. We're made right with him. Peace. Just think about that. There's nothing. There's no enmity between you and God. There's no opposition between you and God. There's no antagonism between you and God. There's no animosity. We have peace with God through Jesus. We get to stand in his presence and revel in his presence and reflect his glory and enter into his goodness. We get to finally enter into that beauty that we have longed for. We get to live our lives united with him. Through him, it says, we have also obtained access by faith. That access, being able to stand before him into this grace in which we stand. So important to know that grace is not something that we had access to at one point in order to get saved, and now it's up to us to reflect the glory of God. No, our ability to reflect depends on our ability to keep standing in the presence of God. And the only thing that will ever make us right enough to stand before God is his grace. That's why we have access because of his grace. That's why we get to stand in his presence and reflect his glory. We rejoice, he says, in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of God's glory. We have finally now found a way to enter into that beauty. Somebody once told me that in Jesus, every fairy tale, have you ever read a fairy tale? All the fairy tales we heard growing up, and then it says, and they lived happily ever after, and there's just joy, and there's beauty, and there's love, and, there's a, but in, and, and then we find that real life is not like the fairy tale at all. <laughs> but in Jesus, all of the best stories are true. In him, we finally get to experience 
satisfaction and fullness and true love and true joy in Christ beyond anything we could experience in this world. Our full, uh, he fulfills our deepest desires. And like the moon reflects the glory of the sun, we once more can reflect the glory of God. We finally found a way of being reunited with the source of life and beauty and reason, and it fulfills us at the deepest level. C.S. Lewis wrote a, uh, a sermon that he preached in June, on June 8, 1942. And this sermon was called The Weight of Glory. And one of the passages from this sermon that he delivered is just one of my favorite passages ever. I'm going to read it to you. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the, for enjoyment of it, for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. This idea that God doesn't want us to desire our own good or to enjoy our own good when we receive it, it's not a part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, our problem as Christians isn't that we desire too much. Our problem is we desire too little. We're too satisfied with what this world, the, the, the mud pies of this world. We're too wrapped up in, in everything that we can attain for ourselves. And God says our real problem is that we haven't caught a glimpse yet of the glory that is to be revealed. And of the fullness of, God, of what God wants to do in our lives. We're too easily pleased. But when we are reunited with God, our joy, our hope, our life, having been restored to the fullness of God's original design for humanity, is once again filled. And the absolute thrill of being able to experience, reflect, and express His glory becomes our greatest desire. We are more fully human, more truly ourselves, more deeply satisfied than we could ever have dreamed. We are taken from being half-hearted creatures enslaved to sin to fully alive fully awakened, children able to enjoy and reflect and know the will of their father. That's the transition. Do you see how far this is from going, this idea of the gospel is like, hey, God is coming to you and going, hey, you're not kind of doing everything I want you to do. Can you just kind of try a little bit harder to be better than what you are right now? Can you see how far that is from anything that's truly full of life? God didn't just come to improve you a little bit or to modify your behavior. He wants to reveal his glory in you. He wants to fulfill you at the deepest level. He wants to restore you to the core of your humanity and as a fully alive human being who now knows that you have been adopted as a child of God, he wants you to walk in the fullness of his purposes and his plans and his pleasure for your life. It's not about being good or being bad. 
It's about walking and being alive in Christ, reunited with God. He goes on to say that this glory that we reveal, this glory that we walk in, it doesn't, it's not dependent on our circumstances. He says we stand, we have access, we stand in this grace with the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but even in our suffering, he continues, even in our suffering, even in difficult times, even in difficult moments, our hope is constant. Our hope is unending. We always have this awareness of the direct involvement of God's spirit in our lives, even when we suffer. And we continue to rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And when we go through difficult times, what do we do? We still rejoice because we're united with God, which means whether we go through good times or whether we go through bad times, whether we're enjoying a season of favor and a season of, of rest and a season where we just, we're just able to kind of, you know, there's not too much calamity around or, or, or whether we go through the most difficult moments in our lives, for us, rest is all the same. Our hope is unchanging because we know that we're united with God. And even in those moments, we're able to reflect His glory. In fact, in those moments, He often polishes us and allows us to reflect His glory to an even greater measure as we go through difficulties in life. God uses those moments, as it says there, to develop and deepen our faith and maturity because suffering produces endurance and produce. And, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. A hope based not on some frivolous thing, but on the work that God has been doing in your life. And that kind of hope won't put us to shame, because we know the love of God is already with us. A lot of people say, well, uh, you know, I used to believe in God, but then, you know, I went through some really difficult things or I lost a loved one or I experienced something really difficult and then, you know, I just don't know if I can believe in God anymore. And they say that people are turned away from God through suffering. But the truth is, and you can go and listen to the testimonies, many, many, many more people have found God through suffering than those that have lost their faith in Him. And if they lost their faith in Him, the chances are that they only really had an idea of God and didn't really know their united state with God. Because if they knew the glory, if they knew the gospel, if they knew His goodness, then suffering is only an opportunity to go deeper in your faith with God. It never turns you away from it. And I've gone through some stuff in my own life and that has always been the case. It only takes me deeper it only helps me to reflect his glory in a greater way. It takes us to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, God is too good to be unkind and too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, I love this, we must trust his heart. When you cannot trace the hand of God, when you don't know where is God working in my life, how is, what is going on, why, why are these things happening, why am I suffering, why am I experiencing loss, why, am I, why do I feel like I've, I've taken a step back and I've experienced a setback, why, why am I going through these things? When we cannot trace his hand, what we do by faith is trust his heart. Trust his heart. When you are so weak that you cannot do much more than cry, you coin diamonds with both your eyes. The sweetest prayers God ever hears 
are the groans and sighs of those who have no hope in anything but His love. This is the stuff of life. This is the depth of the truth that we have, the relationship that we have with the Father. That when we have nothing left, we just cry out to God. We coin diamonds with our eyes. Your eyes become bright, magnifies God's glory and His love and His grace in your life. So we hope and we rejoice in every circumstance. Therefore, Everything that Paul said, he said, we, we're not right with God and we're, we've all fallen short of his glory, but by his grace and through faith, we have been made the righteousness of God. Therefore, peace. Therefore, hope. Therefore, joy. Not fickle, but unending, constant and stable. Therefore, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. And this is the Christian story. This is why it tells us in the Bible that uh, in the times of the early Christians and ever since then in all of Christian history, Christians are seen as peculiar people. We're weird. We're strange to this world because we just continue to hope that regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the hardship, there's stories of Christians of old being martyred in the Colosseum in Rome while they're worshiping, singing praises, and joyfully greeting each other as they're being fed to lions. Because our hope is not in this world. It's in our unity with God. Even when we're persecuted, even in death, Paul says, we do not sorrow like those who are without hope. We live according to the love of God in our hearts that shed abroad, poured out love and so even when we cannot trace his hand, we can keep trusting in his heart. Final verse or verses for this morning, Romans 5 verse 8. It says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. God shows his love for us. He shows his love for us while we were still sinners. He wants to remind you that all of this hope that we have and this unity that we have with God, it didn't come through our ability to be good enough. In fact, God showed love towards us when we were still sinners. So if you've ever felt like you needed to be good enough in order to be accepted by God or loved by God, he's going, let me just tell you that God showed how much he loves us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, made right with God, just as if we'd never sinned, washed clean in his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies of God, God could have punished us in that moment. God could have made a decision when we were his enemies to destroy and judge us all. But because of his great love, while we were his enemies, he went all the way and died for us. That's the extent of his love. A few verses earlier, he says, you'd hardly die for a good man. If somebody was really, really good, you'd hardly lay down your lives for them. But God's love is of such a nature that even when we are at our worst, he is at his best. He dies for us while we're still sinners. Gives himself up for us. If while we were enemies of God, he did everything to reconcile us to him by the death of his son, 
much more. Just think about this. Now you're no longer an enemy of God. You are now reconciled. Much more shall we be saved by his life. In other words, if God was so good to you, when you were his enemy, dead in your trespasses, why do we struggle to believe that God would be good to us now, that we are his children? If he loved us while we were enemies, how much more will he save us when we're his children? How much more can we stand in hope for the future, regardless of the circumstance? How much more hope? If God did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all, how, will, how much more will he not now with him give us all things? Incredible promise. Our, desire, our problem is not that we di- desire too much, it's that we desire too little. God wants us to walk in the fullness of his glory. We shall be saved by his life. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now, be, now received reconciliation. Our trust and our confidence in this life is in his love, not dependent upon how good we are, because at what point did Jesus die for us? Did God kind of, was God kind of looking out at the world and he waited until humanity was kind of good enough and then he was like, yeah, yeah, they're doing better. I'll go die for them now. <laughs> no, when we were at our worst, while we were yet sinners. And so how much more shall we be saved? How much more can we expect God to deliver us in this life? How much more can we expect God to do everything necessary in our lives in order for us to experience the fullness of his glory? I wanna encourage you this morning, church, don't worry so much, okay? Don't worry so much. Don't give up so easily. Don't feel abandoned so soon. When you know the hope, when you stand in his grace, you stand in the hope of the glory of God, that he is reflecting his nature and his goodness in and through your life, that we are reconciled with him and we rejoice again and again and again and again. We just keep rejoicing because we have peace with him. We've been reconciled with him. We cannot be moved. We stand firmly in his grace and we rejoice in the hope of glory. Therefore, the hope of glory. We're justified through faith. Therefore, the hope of glory. The hope of the fullness of God in our lives. How many of you want God's fullness in your life? How many of you want to receive everything that God has for you? You don't want to, you don't want to stop short at your own desires but you want everything that God desires. All of those promises, all of those truths, all of that life, it's ours in Christ Jesus. Amen? Hope of glory. Let's go ahead and pray together this morning.